conversation. All right. So we learned about the complete tzaddik and the incomplete tzaddik. The complete tzaddik loves Hashem completely. And the incomplete tzaddik loves Hashem incompletely. And therefore the complete tzaddik hates evil. Hates evil. Hates evil completely. And because he hates evil completely, his animal soul can no longer delight in anything ungodly, which allows the animal soul to be transformed to delighting only in God. So therefore he's called a tzaddik who has good because his animal soul has been transformed to good. On the other hand, the incomplete tzaddik doesn't hate evil completely. Therefore, he still, his animal soul still derives some pleasure, but that pleasure is completely subordinated so he only experiences any sort of desire or pleasure for ungodly things when they are somehow part of serving God. But otherwise, they're completely subdued and suppressed to the point that the incomplete tzaddik would feel like he doesn't have any ungodly desires at all. Right? I gave the example of non-kosher food. Remember this example? What happens if a little non-kosher food falls into a lot of kosher food? It becomes bottle, right? Nullified, right? Nullified means it's not there, but is it really not there? It depends on what sense you mean, right? I mean, it is chemically there, and even from a halachic point of Jewish law, it's still there. It's just that it doesn't have its ill effect. So what happens if you have, do this again, you have 60 ounces of chicken soup and one ounce of milk falls into it, is the soup kosher? Yes. Yes. All things being equal. In real life, should you just assume all things are equal, should you call a rabbi? Call a rabbi. Because lots of things can affect this. What happens if then a little bit more than an ounce of blood falls into said mixture? Is it still kosher? No. Yes. Because the milk adds to the chicken soup, and so it's 61 against the little more than an ounce of blood, right? And you can keep this process repeating. But if another ounce of milk falls in there, then, then what happens? Then it's not kosher, because the milk, so to speak, wakes up. It's like, ooh, more milk, and projects its milkiness over the chicken soup, which might make it taste good. I don't know, I've never had milk in chicken soup, but it certainly makes it not kosher. So, good? So you could technically get to a point where you have more other stuff than soup, and it's still fine. In that particular scenario, no, because there aren't, you, you, each thing needs to be a separate category of prohibition, and to my knowledge, there are not 60 separate categories of prohibition that are nullified under the 60 times rule. So in practice, no. There are other prohibitions which do work like that. Um, for instance, um, juice that is juiced on Shabbos is forbidden to drink. Okay. Also, juice that flows of its own accord on Shabbos is forbidden to drink. So let's say you have some very overly ripe grapes and they start like dripping out of them some grape juice, which could happen, depending on the kind of grape it is. Can you, you can't drink the juice that collects in the bottom of the bowl because it's juiced on Shabbos even though no one juiced it. It kind of happens on its own. But the rule is that if you put those grapes into some grape juice, and then they start dripping out the grape juice, then it's nullified drop by drop. And even if the overall quantity of the new juice is more than the old juice, it doesn't really matter because each little drop was nullified by the majority. But there are different rules for different kinds of kosher and non-kosher foods, so we're not going to worry about it too much. But yes, so the, the, the reason why I brought this up is because the animal soul's un- Godly attachments, desires, pleasures, delights, etc., they are nullified in the sense that they are not experienced in any way, 
by the incomplete tzaddik unless they facilitate that tzaddik's service of Hashem, such as would an incomplete tzaddik enjoy their food as a way of honoring the Shabbos? Yes. Would a complete tzaddik enjoy their food as a way of honoring the Shabbos? No. The same way I... No, I wouldn't. He wouldn't do it the like, backwards way? I, the same way I don't eat cardboard as a way of enjoying Shabbos. It's just not enjoyable to me to eat cardboard. But because it's a mitzvah and it's just... Ah, so this is important. There is no actual mitzvah to enjoy eating food on Shabbos, contrary to popular belief. There is a mitzvah to enjoy Shabbos. Most people enjoy food. And therefore, the rabbi set up that the way you should honor the Shabbos is by eating enjoyable meals. However, it's not an actual mitzvah to enjoy food on Shabbos. So, um, now they might enjoy the godliness of the food, whatever that means, but they're not going to enjoy the food proper. So, Okay. Now, we're at the paragraph that begins now. It has a little circle attached to it. Does everyone have the Is place? Is there a reason why they're different shapes? Yes. There are a reason why they're different shapes. Do you also want another reason? <laughs> okay. The, the previous Rebbe, the sixth Rebbe of Chabad, set up a, a um, system for studying the entire Tanya every year. Okay. As, um, and he divided the Tanya into sections. A different section be studied each day. What is the rationale for which section you should study each day? Nobody knows. It's entirely mystical. There is no, there is no rational reason for the breakup whatsoever. Um, and one of the things he did is he, in the Jewish calendar you have a leap year and a regular year. A leap year has 13 months and a non-leap year has 12 months. And so he set up two patterns. One for a leap year and one for a non-leap year. And so, I don't remember in this print which the circle represents, which this, this triangle represents, but each one represents a different system. Oh, it has so it has on the bottom, tells you which day it is, right? Now, the irony is, is you think, well, it means just divide it up proportionally, but it's not. Like, sometimes you learn a whole chapter in one day, and sometimes you learn, like, five lines in a day. And sometimes the two patterns converge, and then they diverge again, right? So I'm telling you, it's an entirely mystical reasoning why he broke it up the way he did. Um, but that's where these... so. In this print, they used circle and triangle to differentiate the two. I'm sure if I looked at the introduction, it'll tell me which one's which. Okay. Now, this grade is subdivided into myriads of degrees in respect of the quality of the minute evil remaining in him from any of the four evil elements, as well as in relation to its proportionate abnegation by reason of its minuteness. There's a lot of words in that sentence. <laughs> <laughs> Do that one more time. Now, this grade is subdivided. Let's stop there. What does it mean this grade is subdivided? Of what? No. The incomplete tzaddik. Is there just one kind of incomplete tzaddik or many kinds? Many kinds, right? So this grade, meaning this level of person, the incomplete tzaddik, is not just one giant, one category. It's actually a grouping of many individual categories. How many different, de- in, in, into myriads of degrees. What are myriads? Anyone know what myriads are? Many, 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 many. What? Like a lot. A lot. Okay. Short little Hebrew lesson. Okay. In English, we have, we have numbers. So we have one. We have ten. We have a hundred. We have a thousand. What's after a thousand? A thousand 
Well, now you just used 100,000 together. Give me a new word. A million. A million, right? After a million? A billion. Did you see what I'm doing? Is I'm skipping the re-recycling of words, right? One, then I move to 10. Trillion. Right, trillion, right? Gazillion. What? I don't think actually gazillion is it. Well, you just gazillion for me. What? Quadrillion, septillion, right? Quintillion. It is, but at a certain point, like it's, it's kind of meaningless to say the words, right? Okay, but you're gonna say like, right? I think in everyday speech, most of us don't ever use a number bigger than a trillion. Like maybe if we're talking about the size of the economy, we use trillions, but we don't usually use trillions beyond, right? Okay. In Hebrew, you have echad, which is one, eser, which is ten, meya, which is elef, which is a hundred, elef, which is a thousand. What's the next one? A pime is just two thousand. Right, right, right. Revoir. Revoir is a number which in English would be ten thousand. And they translate it with the word myriad. So the thing to know is that in actual Hebrew, this is actual a number. So how many Jews left Egypt? Sixty myriads. You've heard the number 600,000? Yeah. But if you look in, in the Hebrew, it doesn't say 600,000. It doesn't say 600,000. Sheshmoth Aleph. It says Shishim Revo. 60. 10,000. 10, right. There's, a, there's an actual word for this, right? Just like we have a word for 1,000 in English, we don't have a word. We don't have a word for 10,000 in English. What do we do? We say 10,000, right? So just a basic Hebrew lesson. There is a word in Hebrew, revoa, which means 10,000. Is there any words for any numbers higher than that in Hebrew? Yeah. In biblical and rabbinic Hebrew, there is not. No. That's the highest number you can go. Now, you can have bigger numbers. What would you just say? You would just, use you would just, start, re- just start recycling words, right? Like we, we'd say like 10, 100, right? or 10,000, or 20,000, right? You start recycling the words you have already, right? So for instance, there's a prayer we say, nishma, um, where it's called Nishmas, where we, we want to say that, we use a very big number, we say, Rivi Revoa, a myriad of myriads, which would mean 10,000, 10, thousands. You know, like a thousand thousands, right? Or million millions, that kind of thing. Okay. Isn't there a Sheish, Meis, Elef, But you're still recycling which words? But you could say it that way also, right? Shishim Ruboy and Sheshim Yisrael, right? But the more common expression you'll find in Chazal is, is Shishim Ruboy. 60 myriads. Okay? So, myriad actually in Hebrew, technically speaking, doesn't mean a lot. However, if I tell you that there was a million people there, do I necessarily mean there was an actual million people? No, sometimes I mean... A lot, right? Now the question is, are you using a million because it's, you're exaggerating and it's a number smaller than a million? Or are you using the number million because it's a common number but it's actually way? Right? If somebody were, for instance, tell you, and they say, according to science, the world is millions of years old. Well, according to science, how old is the universe? Billions. Billions, actually, right? So they didn't say millions, billions. They just meant a lot, even though it's actually way more than a million, right? So the, this same... Ambiguity exists with the, with the Hebrew word revot. It sometimes means exactly the number 10,000. Sometimes it means a lot as an over-exaggeration. Sometimes it just means a lot, but it's actually a 
under an underestimate. It's just the biggest number we have word for a number. Okay. Here, in what sense is it being used? Does it mean that there are actually ten thousand? Does it mean that's an over exaggeration, or it means we're just using because it's the biggest number? It's actually way more than ten thousand. Which one do you guys think? Are, there, are they actually 10,000? It's, like, it's, it's way more than 10,000, right? The 10, 000, and we're just using this as the biggest number that we have. A word for a number. Basically, it's infinite almost. Like, it's an infinite amount of degrees. Right. In other words, right. The idea is that you could continually subdivide this over and over again. And this subdivision it has two elements to it. Okay? Number one the quality of the minute evil remaining in him from any of the four evil elements. Okay. So earlier in chapter one, which we didn't learn together, the Alter Rebbe established that the animal soul has four evil elements, which I'm going to talk about briefly. Okay. Um, I'm sure everyone has heard the idea of the four elemental um, forces of like earth, air, fire, and water, or elemental... Whatever you want to call them, yes? Okay. So, what are the four elements, and why does the animal soul have them? And then we'll get back to the text. Okay. So, first off, I want to just make a, a little bit of a general comment about learning. We often make an assumption that something that is said is being said in the paradigm, in the reference frame that we are using. And that often creates misunderstandings. This happens in everyday interactions, right? Um, for instance, you might be a very punctual person and someone says, I'll be there in a minute or two, right? And you actually think that means between 60 and 120 seconds, right? And what they mean is, it's on my list of things, I'll be there eventually, don't worry so much, right? <laughs> you can see how this can be frustrating, okay, right? So we have the problem is that we, we understand things in terms of different points of view, but then we have, just not, that doesn't just run on an individual level, it's also on a societal level, okay? So if I were to ask you a question, how many physical elements are there? Would you know the answer? Roughly, don't have the exact number, give me just, what? What? How many elements are there? More than the ones we know? You start thinking periodic table, right? And, 127, I don't know, maybe they found some more, maybe it's 120-ish something, right, around there? Okay. And if I look in the Rambam, if I look in the Tanya, it says how many elements are there? Four. So, like, well, wait a minute, there's way more elements, right? What's the obvious resolution to this? Chemistry is wrong. No, I'm kidding, that's not the obvious resolution. <laughs> I'm just me joking. Um, no, what's the obvious resolution? Right, right. We're talking about something else because we're talking about a different way of thinking about it, okay? So let's just quickly do a little bit of chemistry. Why are the things on the periodic table called elements? Like, why, do, why are they called that? Why aren't they called, like, chicken? No. They're made up. Like, they, they, make, they, they make, make up other things. Yeah. They are the elements of everything. Yeah, but, I mean, you guys learned a little bit of chemistry, right? Because they have different protons and yeah, but if they're, they're themselves made up of protons, neutrons, and electrons, right? And protons and neutrons are made up of so things called quarks and gluons. Every, every element has its identity characteristics. So does, so, does, so does every other compound, like water. water. So why should we put water on there, too? Is there the smallest entity that has its own characteristics? Right, because electrons don't have their own characteristics. Not each one. 
sure they do. Electrons all electrons have like just like every just like every but oxygen you can't, you can't well, just electrons. You can get sure you can so here's the reason here's the reason here's the reason here's the reason there's a certain set of processes okay let's say for instance things like dissolving things burning things Okay. Um, certain kinds of processes that we can do other than just like putting things on top of each other and wedging them together and cutting them apart, right? And we call these processes by this very loose name called chemical processes, right? So when you burn something, it's a chemical process. When you melt something, right, there, there's, a, there, there's some kind of a chemical process there, right? And the thing is, any kind of process has its elemental Components, meaning the fundamental building blocks that don't change in the process that you're rearranging. So you have a kid with a Lego set, right? And they take the Legos apart and put them back together, right? They're not actually dismantling each individual Lego piece, right? Now, could he dismantle each individual Lego piece? Sure. sure but that's, we don't call it playing with Legos anymore, right? So if you're playing with Legos, the Lego, individual Lego blocks would be elemental, right? Does that make sense? If you are just like doing regular everyday like construction... Right? You're not making the bricks, you're just taking the bricks and piling them up. You, don't, you just treat the bricks as a given, right? So could you do other kinds of processes where you start breaking apart the individual atoms and putting them back together, doing all sorts of weird stuff like that? Yeah, what do we call that kind of nuclear science, right? So because when you're engaged in certain kind of processes, certain things are just the fundamentals, the elements that aren't going to change in that process. They're the things that the process is gonna rearrange and work around, right? So for chemistry, there are how many elements? 120-ish something, right? But now if you go into nuclear physics, you wouldn't think of oxygen as elemental at all, right? You would think it as quite a complex thing. By the way, if you're studying um, sociology, would you think of what would be elemental in sociology? Senses? Sociology? Oh. What, what, what is the fundamental unit that societies are built around. And... What? Well, no, family's a societal arrangement already, right? Polygamy, you know, monogamy, right? What? All these kinds of what? Person, the individual person. And the individual person is elemental on this level of sociology, right? Now, so it's the context that matters? Right. In other words, when you, in other words, what I want you to understand is this notion that we're referring to when we call something an element or fundamental or things like this is we're saying in a particular way of looking at something, certain things I take as the fundamentals and then I'm trying to understand their interactions. It could be those things are actually quite complex and another way of looking like I'm studying what underlays those things, right? That makes sense? Okay. Um, like most economists, one of the things that they deal with is called supply and demand. You've heard of supply and demand? So the mind of man is based on people's preferences, their desires. And, and most economists will just treat those desires as just elemental. People have a desire for this, they have a desire for that, and maybe they'll try to understand how those desires are different relating to the economy. But those desires are actually quite complex things that arise from other things. You might want to study psychology or sociology to understand how those influence the desires, right? So should you just treat oxygen as like a fixed thing and that's it? It depends, it depends what you're studying, right? If you're studying chemistry, right? 
then you never break down that atom. You might add or subtract electrons, but the actual right unit of having oxygen is 14. Yes, 14 protons doesn't change. That's just fixed. Right? That's the periodic table. Try to illustrate that to you visually. Good? Okay. So now, when we speak about four elementals, Entities, right? four elemental aspects or properties, whatever that is, whatever word you would like to use, what's the way in which we're thinking about it? So we're going to first talk about the physical four elemental forces, and then we're going to move on. Okay? Um, when we look at the world, when we experience the physical world around us, what are some of the things that we notice physically about the world? We notice that certain things are hard, and other things are... Certain things are hot and other things are, right? Certain things tend to move down and other things tend to move up. And so if we kind of thematically arrange these kind of the way like you would do so like in a story, in a story you have the villain and you have the hero and the anti, right? You have kind of these, thema- right? So you could start saying like, you know, certain things, you know, you can't really move through them unless you break them. They're very rock-like in that sense, right? And other things... You can move through them, right? They kind of just move around you. In that sense, they're much more water-like, right? Certain things tend to be cooler. Certain things tend to be warmer. Certain things tend to fall down. Certain things tend to go up, right? And so if you kind of come up with a sense of like a basic sense of the qualities of things, right? And we're not, so we're not talking about little pieces of fire, earth, air, and water. What we're talking about is a, is a qualitative description. So... He would say that since in something that is flexible, but at the same time it doesn't, um, it, it holds its shape, is some combination of the element of earth and the element of water. So, um, no, let's say plastic. On the one hand, plastic is not brittle, so its flexibility is more water-like. On the other hand, can you just move your hand right through it? So it's somewhat rock-like. So then in this way of thinking, which is not a way we're used to thinking, we don't think like this in the modern world so much, you would describe plastic as a mixture of what? Which two elements? Earth and water, water, right? But what are you getting at here? That if you look in a microscope, you can find little pieces, little little atoms of earth and little atoms of water arranged in a special arrangement to, no. What are you describing? Qualities, right? Now, we, we kind of talk about this way. Have you ever like read descriptions of food? What, it t- what food tastes like. like. You eat a food, right? Or you ever read the back of wine labels? Oh, those are... <laughs> right? So regardless of whether they're accurate or not, right? It's like, here's a small hint of cherry. Like, they didn't put any cherry. And what they mean to say is that when you taste it, it has a taste which is kind of cherry-like. But also, right? And so you can, right? So we do this with food, right? We have like sweet and sour, right? And we're talking about the qualitative experience of what we're not talking about like little pieces that it's made up of, right? Does this make sense? Okay. Now, what we have to do next is a little bit abstract, but it's important. Is there anything physical that you can experience without attaching a qualitative label to it? Something which is neither hot nor cold, neither soft nor hard, doesn't tend to move nor tend to stand still? Can there be a physical thing that has none of these qualities? In our experience, I'm talking about purely in our experience, not like the abstract thing that you can theorize using physics. No, right, that makes sense? 
A physical thing, right? If I say like, oh, there's this physical object, and you say, well, is it hard? You say, no, it's not hard. So it's soft. It's not soft. Can you move through it? No, you can't move through it. Oh, so it blocks you when you're trying to go through? No. Is it hot? No. Is it cold? No. And I don't mean it's room temperature. I don't mean some, some in the middle space between hot and cold. It's just, right? You can't have a physical object that doesn't have some set of these qualities, right? So it's these qualities that differentiate one physical object from another. Does that make sense? On the other hand, in its essence, every physical object is equally the same. It's a physical object, right? Some water or it's on a rock are fundamentally the same thing in that they're both physical entities, but they're very different in terms of their qualities. So in this way of thinking, when I want to describe how something manifests, how it exists in a different way than another thing, I speak about its different elemental properties, as opposed to I want to just talk about its fundamental essence, then I talk about what's called its it's fundamental material, it's prime matter. So the way you think about this, and it's gonna be a way of doing everything, is that in everything that exists in this way of thinking, you kind of have two layers. You have what it is in its essence, and then the qualities that it manifests that differentiate it from other like things. At its essence, you're saying would be the, like the elements on the period of here? No, no, it's a different thing. So you have to ignore chemistry altogether. So like, what are some essential what are some things that are essential to all physical things? Something that all physical objects share in common. I'm talking just like basic, naive. As it what? It take it, it's in it's in a certain space. It takes up right at a certain time, right? Right where it is, something else can't be, right? These are essential qualities of material objects. Sure, it does. Well, so, what? But, but where your hand is, the fire just moves around your hand. Not, like if the flame literally goes all the way through your hand, then your hand ends up with a burnt hole in it, and you don't really want that, do you? Right, it takes up space. So does the flame. If you, I mean, I don't know if you've ever done this, but try and move your finger through a flame. Yeah, you're, you're, yeah, that has this kind of... Don't, if you move it fast, you won't burn yourself. Anyway. Okay. By the way, just, just on a purely technical note, the, the elemental property of fire is very different than the other three elemental properties, and I don't want to go into it right now why it is. Just, okay. But the idea is that something is essential, something being physical has certain essential qualities. It exists at a particular place at a certain time. Where it is, other things can't be when it's there, right? So that would be like, the, those are the essential qualities of, of the material world. But then you have the, the qualities that differentiate one object from the other. How solid is it? How flexible is it? How hot is it? How cold is it? Etc. 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 And then in this way of thinking, these can be grouped into four broad categories. What? No. The qualities. So you have to take two, two things. One, they both are the same in the sense that they are at a place at a specific time. They take up space when they're, where they are, something else can't be. But they're different. This one, when you try to move your hand through it, it moves around your hand. This one, when you try to move your hand through it, it stops your hand, right? So this is more rock-like. This is more air-like, right? Some things have a kind of combination of the two, like say plastic, it has a flexibility, but it also hand, it, it, it still has a solidity to it, right? 
and you can do them with hot and cold and other kinds of qualities. And it's kind of grouped together in these themes. Well, now you can take this idea and you use that as a kind of the way we often do many things in life. We, we, we analogize non-physical reality to physical reality. Okay. So what does the animal soul really care about? What? Yeah, quality of life, right? Okay. This can be manifest in four basic ways. One way is called fire. One way is called water. One way is called air. And one way is called earth. In other words, there's a basic notion that there's a being that just wants to have a high quality of life. That's the essential characteristic of the animal soul. Has actually how many different elements to it different ways it can be manifest, different ways it can express itself. And we say that there are four. Now, are there really just four? Are those four just a broad grouping of similar characteristics? Okay? So briefly, what are the four? So we're going to start from the bottom. Actually, no, I changed my mind. We'll start from the top. So the first one is fire. It's the top. It's the top. Fire. And fire manifests, fire is the sense of raising up. That you want to have a high quality of life, so you try to raise yourself up. We're going to focus now on the negative manifestations of these things, because there's, the time speaks about these having four negative attributes. Okay? So, what would, so there's an idea of trying to make yourself greater, but that has a negative Manifestation. So what would that look like? The altar gives two examples. One is arrogance. What is arrogance? Would you like to... What? No. Not gonna, no, no, no. We're going we're gonna to be actually... The problem is that we're using English, but we're going we're gonna to be... The, 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 the idea here of arrogance is that the ego is not inflated at all. That's the problem. If it was inflated, we'd be okay. Or not okay, would just be a different problem. Would you like to be the valedictorian of your class? Would you like to be the, the president of whatever organization you're in? Would you like to be on the top of whatever hierarchy you're participating in? Yes or no? What? Sort of. I mean, most people, the answer is sort of, right? Very few people, the answer is an absolute yes at all costs, right? But okay. Now, to whatever degree the answer to that is yes, think about this for a second. What does it mean by definition if you're at the top of a hierarchy? Everyone else has to be below you, right? It's a zero-sum kind of a thing. Okay, and it's, this is why since it's not inflated. This notion of trying to raise yourself up is you don't want to have an inflated ego. You really do want to be smarter than everyone else. It's not enough that, that you tell yourself you're smarter than everyone else. You actually want to be. And it's not enough that you tell yourself you're richer than everyone else. You actually want to be richer than everyone else. Okay? So that's one manifestation of the fire of the animal soul. Another manifestation is anger. What is anger at its core? When do we get angry? What? Things don't go right. So who's so who should, has the right to decide how things are supposed to go? Really, I do. And if you dare violate my agenda, right? Right, that, that's, that's what underlies anger. So what's the common theme between these two things? 
It's about feeling your superiority over others around you. Okay? And it has to be, and, it's, and, it's, and, and, and it, the superiority isn't fake. In other words, the, you, know, you have, would have like a person who really works really hard to be the best. Like they really want to be the best. But remember, what does being the best mean? Everyone else is less than you. What? Everyone else has to be less than you. Right? Um, there's an interesting phenomenon. People go to um, they're the top of their class in high school and they go to an elite university and very often they suffer mental breakdowns. One of the reasons for this, not the only, but one of the reasons for this is what kind of identity do you build for yourself when you're the smartest person in your local high school? that you're the highest, you're the best, right? Then you go to an elite university and half the people in the elite university are below the average of that university and all of them were the best in their high school. So you went from being the top to being below average. Average or below, half of them are now locally below the average, right? And if your whole sense of high quality of life is wrapped up in this notion of being the top and being the best and getting your way and achieving, it's a big, it's a big shattering to the psyche. Now, if all you really want to do is learn, then it wouldn't really bother you so much, right? right? If you take out the competitive element, the notion of being the top and being the best, and you're just, I really want to learn as much as I can. If someone knows more than me, that's fine. It doesn't bother me. Then that wouldn't be a problem. Okay. So that is the evil element of fire of the animal soul. By the way, is there an element of fire of the godly soul? Sure. Everything's going to have an element of fire. Everything's going to have an element of water. Everything has... It's a pattern that Hashem uses in creating things. Everything has similar or analogous ways of manifesting itself. Um, okay, what about the next one is water? What is the evil element of water of the animal soul? Pleasure. It's the pursuit of pleasure. It's very, very important. It's the pursuit of pleasure. What's the difference between pleasure and the pursuit of pleasure? What? Okay, there's, there's an element of always wanting more, but, but when you have pleasure, does that mean pleasure is a source of value? In other words, is it true that when I spend time with my son, I enjoy it? Yeah. Yes. Does that mean that my enjoyment is what gives that activity value? Not necessarily. But when I'm pursuing pleasure, what am I doing? The value in things has now become the pleasure it gives me. And so now everything becomes centered around myself and everything else, ha- and, it, and it erases any kind of intrinsic value, anything would have in its own right. Like what would be the difference between enjoying teaching and teaching because you enjoy it? Right, and teaching is about students growing, right? So one is you see the value in students growing and that's why you're doing it. And of course, you might, you probably enjoy it, especially if you're doing well. But, but if you're doing it because you enjoy it, then the students become a pawn. And by the way, Hasidus is quite explicit about this and, and, and quite extreme about this, that the pursuit of pleasure is inherently evil. And even takes us, by the way, what if you want to get closer to God because God makes you feel good? Yeah. So we have to, this is a subtle distinction, but it's a very important distinction. 
There's the pursuit of pleasure, and then there's pleasure. What is the evil element of water for the animal soul? It's the pursuit of pleasure, right? Which means that the value in things as far as my soul is concerned now becomes about how much pleasure it gives me rather than whatever it actually is or who it actually is. Okay? That make sense? Okay. Um, by the way, different cultures tend to skew more towards one thing or the other thing. For instance, if we were to look in um, the culture in the West, um, in the, you know, say the, the early part of the 20th century, was it more like, did it appeal more to the element of fire of the animal soul or the element of water to the animal soul? If we were to, what? Early 20th century. What? Well, what, in the early 20th century, things were very much about achieving and becoming, and right? Um, right? And we have made a shift now. Things are very, right? In other words, if we've... And it's like other, making this is a broad cultural thing, right? If someone were to say, my goal in life is to be the top and the best, and I want to be in charge, and I want, right? How do we think of that as a... I want to be an elite that's on top of everybody else, and I run the show, and I have the best ideas, right? Do we as a society go, bravo, good for you? Do we do, we do that as a society? Or that, but they used to, right? Now, but a person says, I really just want my life to feel good. I want to be able to do the stuff that makes me feel good. Today. Now we like, right? Celebrate. Right, that's what we're celebrating. Now, these things change, right? Different cultures are different with different ways. And, but, but they appeal to different, so to speak, qualities of the animal soul, if you will. Okay. Then you have my personal favorite, which is the element of air. What is the element of air? Let me ask you a question. How does responsibility feel? Start, we're going to do this a little bit backwards. How does it feel to have like real responsibility sitting on your shoulders? Like really important things that depend on you. It feels good? No, it's burdensome. Which... So, so actually I should, I should specify my question, okay? What I mean to say is, I'm not asking you about a life that has that, when you reflect upon it, do you feel more fulfilled? But I'm asking you in the moment that you have heavy responsibilities no. weighing upon you. No, no. This is actually an interesting thing like, like, like that philosophers and psychologists study, which is there is the quality of life in the moment that is lived and there's the quality of life upon, that is a life reflected upon. Like, it actually does feel quite good to just like eat junk food in the moment, right? But if you reflect upon a period of time where all you did is eat junk food, you actually feel... So it's like memory. Quite empty, right. So it's an interesting question, like why we, why we think as an ethical thing we should value the reflected life over the momentary existence, but whatever. But like when you've got heavy issues and important things, right? That, right in fact, we often like trying to escape that kind of stress, right? Um, have you ever had this experience of like you finish a long day of all sorts of responsibilities and all you want to do is, how would you put it? Crash, tune out, right? Right. Basically, you want to create a sense that it, there isn't any anything really serious and really important and really heavy. That that's kind of the appeal of it. This is the element of air, and this leads to activities such as idle chatter. Idle chatter, emphasis on that is idle, meaning it doesn't actually lead to anything productive. Scoffing, what is scoffing? Someone else takes something very seriously, and what do you do? Yeah, you try and show how it's not that important, right? 
Boasting. This is the inflated ego. But what is the difference between boasting and arrogance? The way, the way we're describing it, Tanya, is that if you're really arrogant, what do you do? You the, to right, if, you, if you're just boasting, what do you do? It's all air. It's all air, Blasting. right? It's all, right. So this is something I know that men do a lot is that somebody will tell a story that makes them look really good and someone else will take a story that makes them look really good and then they have this competition of making of stories about like how amazing each person is. And like it's just a show. Like nobody like and in the meantime nobody's actually doing anything productive and it's a nice way of just like chilling out and hanging out. But it's, there's nothing it feels good in the moment, it's but it's very vacuous. Okay. Um we also have a lot of this in our society, right? Okay, and the last one. Yeah, I don't know if that's where it comes from, but that would, it would explain why we use these kinds of expressions. Okay, and the last one is the element of earth. Um, is it hard to live a life like really live, like to thrive and flourish? Does that take effort? Yeah. Yes, and using taking effort, that's stressful, painful, difficult, right? So wouldn't it just be easier just to, like give up? Just to stay in bed. Just to not do anything. Yes. Yes. There's a kind of perverse pleasure almost in being lazy and sad and miserable because then you just don't have any anything to do. And that's the last one. The element of earth is sadness and manifesting with things like sadness, laziness. Sadness in the sense of just a lifeless giving up and not caring, not... A, a, a sense of being upset about something. That, that's a different thing. How's that different than air then? Because in air, you're kind of kind of creative space where nothing matters. In sadness, you just, deep, you just start feel like, what's the point? Mm-hmm. It's a very different kinds of experiences, right? It's fun to be around people when you're in an airy mood and they're in an airy mood, it's kind of fun. When, when you're in a sad mood, it's it really like this, this flavor of it's different. Yeah, and all that the thing is, and these it's, these are all different flavors of the same thing. It's all different flavors of being wrapped up in the quality of your own life. Okay, so now remember how I said about like different physical things? They're all physical, but they vary. Like some things are more rock-like, and some things are more water-like. Right? Like water is pretty water-like. Plastic is somewhat water-like because it's flexible, but not totally water-like. Okay. Well, all of our animal souls are essentially the same. They're just wrapped up in the quality of our own lives, right? But my animal soul varies from your animal soul on these different dimensions of these different elements, right? Some of us are more driven towards arrogance and being the best, and we get upset when things don't work out. And other people, it's like their animal soul is not so strong in that dimension. It's much more, you know, just the hedonist one, which is just enjoy pleasures of life, right? And some people, they're more airy, and some people are just more... Just lazy and forlorn, right? There's dip- and these, again, they're broad groupings. So the idea is all animal souls are not the same. To, to use a, a, a psychological word for this, different animal souls have kind of a different personality. So for instance, if your animal soul is a very um, fiery animal soul, okay, and you haven't done a lot in life that you can feel really proud of, that you're like the top 1% of you know, the people that you can conceive of, you're gonna be pretty upset with yourself, right? 
On the other hand, um, if your animal soul is a little bit more on the airy side, right? Like just hanging out and schmoozing, that's good enough for you. And like you can like enjoy your life just by doing that all day. Is one better? Is one worse? From the perspective of Chassidus, not really. They're just different. Okay? And so what ends up being is that animal souls don't really don't look the same. Just like, and this is where I want to start, just like all physical objects are all equally physical, and yet they're so radically different because they have different combinations of these kind of elemental qualities. Right? No one looks at the ocean and looks at a rock and looks at a tree and says, oh, it's all physics all the same, right? We don't do that. We have a deep sense of how each of these things are very different in the quality and how we live our lives and interact with them, right? And just one second. And these are qualitative differences, it's not amounts. It's not like physics, like how much force and how much energy and how many protons. It's a qualitative way of experiencing the world. Well, our animal souls are equally as varied. My animal soul is nothing like your animal soul, and your animal soul is nothing like mine. Does it have the same basic fundamental qualities? Sure. There's a certain amount of arrogance and a certain amount of... Of, of, of hedonism and a certain amount of laziness but when you get into the specifics what my animal soul is like and what your animal soul is like is radically different just like a tree is radically different from a rock which is radically different from water good? Yeah. okay, yes so personality comes doesn't necessarily mean anything about the personality stays the same. Okay. okay. Now, to be fair, what we call personality in modern psychology is much more complex than just this. It involves a lot of other things, like conscious self-identity and stuff like that. Good? Okay. So now, let's say I have two incomplete sadiks. They're incomplete in the sense that some aspect of their animal soul has remained, some of its negative qualities have remained, Right? But those tzaddikim may not be the same because in one tzaddik what remained is some element of the earth and in another tzaddik what remained is some element of water, right? And so that there's going... Which, that's what he says here, they're, they're subdivided into myriads of degrees in respect to the quality of the minute evil remaining in him from any of the four evil elements. And remember, when we say that there's four elements, that's just talking about a basic level, right? But as you get more specific, right, is plastic the same thing as... Metal, like steel. Now, are they both flexible, malleable in some degree? They're both solid? Yeah. But yeah, they're very different, right? So it's not fair to say, well, well they're, just, they're just some combination of water and earth, right? They're very different. And so this kind of way of thinking is that these general notions of earth, air, wa- fire, and, and, and water are just kind of like broad thematic categories. But the actual specifics vary from individual to individual. So which element of which, which manifestation of which element of, of that tzaddik's animal soul remains um, within their animal soul, is still there, is still present, even though it's been nullified, it's been suppressed. And that varies from tzaddik to tzaddik. So deep, 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 deep down, there may be a tzaddik who still really enjoys the taste of food, and there's another tzaddik who actually food doesn't speak to them at all, but they still have some arrogance deep down inside. And there's another tzaddik who has no arrogance inside, but there's still an underlying laziness, right? Now again, do you see these differences manifest? No. No. 
But if these differences ever become relevant in helping them serve Hashem, they will play a role. So you won't see the man- differences manifest in a negative light, but there will still be some kind of an element of difference. Oh, so if it's gone, it won't even show up on Right, if it's gone, it's gone. Right. Because remember, remember, there's the element that you hate it, and there's the, uh, the hatred, so you got rid of it completely, and there's the element where it's being subjugated. And what he's saying is that different, you know, the minute evil remaining can be from different elements or different combinations of elements. So we wouldn't see again with incomplete, for the complete tzaddik at all, because it's like it's gone. It's gone. And the incomplete like it even he removes his like unique combination of. But some element is going to remain. So the question is, what is going to remain? For the complete tzaddik. For the complete tzaddik, so yeah. It's gone, right? He doesn't even have Bazalman's stone to make up. Right. He also wasn't born with that, probably, right? Let's not worry about it. Okay, fine. So, but with him, it's there. You only see it manifested with, like, connecting to God. Right. You see the flavor of that particular topic. Right. Now, to be fair, godly souls also have personality, but we're not going to worry about that right now. Okay. How could... How could, like, these negatives be used in... How can the negative things be used in a godly way? So let's say, for instance, you have a situation. Um, oh, so here's a situation, right? Let's say... Um, so there was a point in which... And I forget which king it was. Um, I think it was... I don't remember which king. One of the kings of Judah, of the kingdom of Yehuda, um, he wanted to prevent the Egyptian army from traveling through the land of through, from the land of Israel in order to fight the Assyrian Empire. And his basis was, it says in the Torah, that one of the blessings of Hashem's favor is that, is that an army won't travel through your land, even an army that's peaceful to you. Just the very idea that, it, and this is something we don't think of nowadays because it doesn't happen as much. Um, but it used to be like armies would travel, right? And so what happens if you have an army wants to go somewhere else and your country's in the middle? Right, so if the, you're, they're your enemy, they just conquer, they go through your country against your will. But if, they could also just ask peacefully permission to travel through your country. Right? And there's one of the blessings in the Torah is that Hashem will secure the Holy Land such that that won't even happen. You won't even have an enemy, another country coming through an army, even if it's peaceful to you. And so this king, is, he wanted to prevent the Egyptian army from coming through, even if they weren't going to fight against the Jews, because we're Hashem's Holy Land, we have Hashem's special protection. And on the other hand, there was a prophet who was telling him God doesn't think that that's appropriate. God says we are not so, the people aren't so righteous, they don't deserve that special protection. Let the Egyptians cross the border. Okay? So now, imagine this king, I'm making this up now, right? That, that's a real thing that mentioned this enough. But now imagine you've got this king and imagine he's in complete tzaddik. Now, let's imagine that the thing that still remains in him is some element of fire. Is he going to have an easier or harder time obeying the prophet? Harder, harder right? There's some element of going to have to like strengthen it, right? It, there, there's some deep, deep down, some tension between some aspect of his, who he is as a person and his love for Hashem, right? So there's going to, so his, his right? Even though, even though it's all about his connection to Hashem and to our mitzvahs, but he's going to have to kind of, on some level, overcome himself a little bit more. On the other hand, what if the only part of him that remains is the element of earth? Well, the idea of just being passive and doing nothing, his animal soul is much more, that, that's its 
okay with that, right? So it's more going to be that that obedience to the prophet is going to be feel a lot more natural to him, right? So that's a subtle distinction, but it is a distinction, right? And then you could have conversely, right? You could have somebody, right, who who Hashem says go up and you know do something, and they're you know the the part that remains is so. Right, so it never feels like a battle between should I obey Hashem or not obey Hashem to the incomplete tzaddik. But we all know even stuff that we really want to do and we're not conflicted about doing. Sometimes it's easier for us, and sometimes it is harder. Well, if the animal soul is really on board with that because that's its nature, it's going to be a little bit easier for that tzaddik to do that. It's going to be feel a little more natural. When the animal soul is not on board, the tzaddik is going to feel like they're like they're actively engaging and to choose. It doesn't feel like a war because they don't really feel conflicted about it. Yes. Does your godly soul have any No. But, but your godly soul is a personality, and so it does have limitations. In other words, a Yetzirah is strictly speaking, we're going to label as that inclination to go against Hashem. That is the animal. Well, that, it's not the animal soul, but it's... That, yeah, it, 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 gets you, it gets you to disregard the godly soul, right? So uh, Tzadik doesn't have that at all, the godly, right? But, so... Even, so even though it's all about I love Hashem and I want to be connected to Hashem, right? Sometimes the way Hashem wants you to connect to Him more fits with your temperament and sometimes it more doesn't. And that issue can play out even on the level of the animal. Where the, if, if the animal soul is not completely refined, that creates a kind of a weight. A kind of a... It's like if you go swimming and you were to like attach a weight to your, to, your, to your ankles when you're swimming, it's a little bit harder to swim. So... If what Hashem wants of the incomplete tzaddik is inconsistent with that underlying nature of their animal soul, it a little more requires a little bit more effort on the God on that tzaddik's part. They're still not conflicted. They're for sure going to do it. They're for sure going to do what Hashem wants because they're the only thing they feel is a love for Hashem and a hatred towards evil. But sometimes that is going to feel a little bit more smoother and natural. Sometimes it's a little bit more challenging. It's like sometimes you're 100 percent committed to something, but it still takes you out of your natural temperament of how to do things. Does that make sense? How does how is idle chatter scoffing and supposed to be I don't know. <laughs> but I can make some stuff up. I don't see it. Like some elements I could I'll give you a, I'll tell you a story although I, I, I'll, I'll tell you I'll tell you a story. Um there was a, a a famous tzaddik. I don't think it's the same thing as this, but it's an interesting thing. There's a famous tzaddik named Mendel Haradokar, who was a student of the Baal Shem Tov and of the Magad Rich, and he was good friends and somewhat of a mentor and teacher of the Alter Rebbe. And um, he, in his youth, um, shall we say, did not come across as the most humble person, to put it mildly. Like, when he would meet with very big rabbis, he would sit like this with his jacket open. And um, some very great tzaddikim and rabbis, they, they were very put off by his brazenness and his just, like, he had a very flippant attitude about himself. Um, he, he, when he would visit the Magdim as rich on Rosh Hashanah, he used to sit in the back of the shul and just chat with people during davening. On Rosh Hashanah. The, you know, the, in the back of the shoulder is always the people schmoozing. The people like, so used to sit with them and chat. Um, so sometime, so once someone asked, I think it was the Magad of Mizrich, but I could be getting the details wrong. I don't remember who was asked about him. But asked, like, why is he so, like, boastful and cavalier and this whole, like, 
And so I think it was the Maggid said that what do you do with your most precious possessions? The things that are most meaningful to you. What? You keep them close and you hide them from public view, right? So the most precious thing to him is his sense of humility before God. And so he hides it. <laughs> now, this is a person who was, this is a, person who was, who was, who was a real tzaddik. So, I mean, like, but the thing is, like, sometimes things are so far outside of our experience that the idea is cute, but it's, like, hard to relate to that. Like, it's hard to have a sense that humility, instead of being a virtue I work on, is such an intimate connection with Hashem that it feels vulgar to expose my humility. Like, I don't even know how to relate that to that. mean that you're an arrogant. No, but it does, it, it, it does mean that you, you, you give off a sense that you're a person who's... Which is different than being mean, I would like to point out. There's, there's, that's what I'm saying. It's not arrogant. There's a certain, like... What? Yeah. Anyway, I, I don't know if that's the same thing as this. It's hard. But it's just an illustration of the idea that, that once you've completely changed what you're experiencing, certain attitudes and behaviors have to be radically re-understood. Um, and that there is a limit to our ability to to project beyond the range of our own experiences. So, like, like the example of enjoying food on Shabbos I think is a pretty straightforward example, but like as you go further and further, right, it, it's a little bit harder to, to appreciate these things. Okay. Um, the other way in which they are different, as well as the relation of portion abdication by reason of its minuteness, such as by way of example, one in 60, one in 1,000, or one in 10,000 and like. In other words, how much, right? How much is this whatever's whatever remains, but it being subdued? How much is what, what's the what's the ratio? Is it sixty times the love of Hashem and hatred of of Klipa against this particular trait, or is it a thousand times, or is it ten thousand times? And this is actually very important because remember what I said about the milk. If you bring more milk in, what happens? Become not kosher. Well, if you're an incomplete side, like what happens if the animal soul starts to strengthen itself and the godly soul does not maintain that same level of love proportionally? What could theoretically happen to the incomplete tzaddik? It's not that anymore. It's right. And so therefore, there is... So there's a question like, how far away, how many steps away is this tzaddik from falling out of being a tzaddik? How much love could they lose and how much more could the animal soul strengthen itself before... The animal soul is no longer subdued. So some tzaddikim might be just right on the cusp of that, right? They're just barely at tzaddik. And some tzaddikim are like really, really deep into it. That would take a lot of radical change before they would get to losing these types of things. So what you have to think about it is that the tzaddik is a real psychological state. Someone who's just enough in love with Hashem. They have just enough hatred that it subdues all of their, their animal soul's traits. But they're like on the edge of a cliff. And then you could have a person that only a tiny little bit remains and it's so subdued it would take a lot, a, a, a radical change in the whole way they relate to Hashem before that could ever possibly reemerge. So these two tzaddikim are not remotely alike, are they? I mean, they're very much alike in the sense that all they want to do is be closer to Hashem at the moment. That's all they feel. They don't experience any negative characteristics of their animal soul. It feels like it's gone. But... And they're alike in the sense that it's not really gone, it's in some sense subdued. But once you go into the details, they're radically different. All right, questions?
kind of person slip in and out of these prisons? Yes, although it's not such a, it's not like a, it's not something that happens every single day. The, the Talmud tells a story of one of the high priests, Rabbi Yochanan, who for 80 years went into the Holy of Holies and was a tzaddik, and at the end of his life he became a heretic. And Hasidus brings us as an example of how an incomplete tzaddik can fall. They can lose that status. Because just like with the soup, right? You pour enough milk in, it doesn't matter. Eventually it all gets undone. Is a complete tzaddik doing as much monitoring? It's like, like, no? So I would say this. The, the incomplete tzaddik is not doing any monitoring either. People seem like they have to be con- like constantly conscious of this in, in, a, psych- in a psychological... No, I, I would say it's like this, right? If we were to use the following analogy. Are you capable... Can I be blunt for a second? Everyone's okay with this? Are you capable of murder? Yeah. Sure, right. We're all capable of murder. I mean, to admit it, we're all capable of murder. Do you have to monitor yourself so you don't murder somebody? Not at this point. No, because the way you live your life, right, is such that it's so remote from you, right? It's a good example. Right? So, but now, I would say, like, if, if your life starts to become more stressful, resources become more scarce, right, you might, you might slip out of that state where, like, you might start actually contemplating killing someone. In that sense, now you would ever start monitoring yourself, right? That could happen to a person. So uh, if a person, put it this way, if a person needs to monitor themselves, they're not a tzaddik because they, un- they feel that ungodly attachment already breaking into their conscious motive, their, the desires that govern their life. That's situational. I love that. Like, is that part of it? Well, so, so, so the idea is, 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 chapter 14, it says that to be a tzaddik requires a certain amount of revelation from Hashem. And so as long as that revelation is maintained the person doesn't need to really be afraid that they would lose it. But they do need to be aware that if that revelation disappears, then there's nothing intrinsically preventing them from, from, from feeling those animal desires. And once you feel those animal desires, it's a whole different process to keep yourself on the proper path. That's, a, that's why they are yes. exotic, yes. their own work. It's a combination. Think about a good marriage. Can you decide to have a good marriage? To work on it. But even if you do, do all the work you can, can you decide to have a good marriage? That's not always in your control. That's right. It's not always in your control. Why not? Because of factors that are not in your hands. Like Specifically? The other, the other person. There's another person, right? What if the other person doesn't want to cooperate? You can't do it. Right. So we would have to differentiate between being a good spouse and having a good marriage, right? Mm. You could say this is the difference between the tzaddik and the baini. The baini is a good... The baini is a person who has taken full responsibility for everything they can do but there is something that there, there is a level which is beyond what they can do merely on their own and there needs to be some level of divine assistance without that divine assistance to have a sense of Hashem so much that you love Hashem rather than leave, being close to Hashem remember we had that discussion to love Hashem you have to have a sense of Hashem and that has to be revealed and if Hashem deprives you of that revelation well so it's not about looking for it it is you need both in other words in other words in other words, if a, the way I'm going to set it up now, the later on in time you're going to learn that it's not exactly this way, is that if you really try to relate to Hashem as best as you can, then He reveals Himself to you and awakens the soul's natural sensitivity to Hashem and the person becomes a tzaddik. We'll learn later on that that doesn't actually happen to everybody. Um, that's actually a major theme. But being a tzaddik would mean that you wouldn't have to be monitoring yourself. But if you were to be honest, you would have to have the sense that 
that this is a product of the way I'm experiencing Hashem. And should it be I would lose this experience of Hashem, there's nothing intrinsically preventing me from feeling the, the animal soul's attachments. So it's basically God distances himself? Like it's like luck? It's not luck. Okay. It's not luck. But it, the later on, the Alter calls it a reward. Does, um, no, do all types of sleeping have to, do different types of sleeping, um, so they can have to monitor themselves? They don't monitor themselves, themselves at all. They don't monitor themselves at all, right? Do you have to monitor yourself not to murder like, people? But even the things that are... No, because remember, the animal soul is nullified, right? So the question is not, as long as the animal soul is nullified, you don't have to worry about it. Right? The animal soul is like the milk and the chicken soup, right? You don't have to worry about it. But you do have to be aware that it's the reason why you don't have to worry about it is because it's nullified. So what happens if it becomes unnullified? Remember, it's not a conscious decision to, to overcome yourself. Okay. Let me let me let me give you let me give you a, 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 a it's a it's a slightly not perfect example that illustrates the point, right? Do parents have to be monitor themselves to make sure they don't leave little kids in the car? No, generally Yes, not. they do. Not always. It's like instinct for most. No, it's very it's easy. Unfortunately, it's really not. Easy it's really easy. I'm a parent. I mean, I'm a, I don't, I don't, I don't <coughs> drive. My wife drives, but it's very easy, especially if you have, especially if you're doing other things. Yeah, because you're busy in life. You are busy, and so like you don't realize, like especially when when you have a kid and when something is not a usual routine, like. You, like you have a kid that you don't normally take to school, right? And you forget, or are you running in for something? Or, oh, there's a million different things, right? I'll give you another example. Like you bring all the kids in from the car and walking with the kids and I don't know, one of the kids wanders away and you don't realize a few minutes later, and like, it happens, okay? So you, you do have to monitor. You have to monitor yourself to monitor your kids to have a sense of where they are, it's a real thing, okay? If you're bringing home your child the first time from the hospital, do you have to remember to not leave them in the car? No, because you're in a totally different state, right? Okay. A tzaddik is a person who lives, not in the moment, but in a kind of real way, ongoing basis, with a sense of all I want is closeness with Hashem. All I feel is a love towards Hashem, right? It's not even a long one. It's all I want is Hashem. I hate anything ungodly to some degree or another. And therefore, whatever degree that my animal soul still retains any kind of attachment, any kind of these negative elements has no purchase, has no influence in how I live my life in any real way. I don't even feel them to the point that we said at the beginning of the chapter. The person feels like they don't have those attachments anymore at all. And as long as that's the state they're living in, they don't even monitor themselves. Now the question is, well, what brings them to that state? What brings them to that state is they worked really hard to make their godly soul as dominant as could be. And as we'll learn later on, they have to get to this point is not something you do entirely on your own. There's some level of divine assistance. What would make the bad in them wake up? What would make the bad in them wake up is, for instance, Hashem could deprive them of that. There's stories, like there's a famous story of Baal Shem Tov, there's a few stories where he was deprived of this awareness of Hashem. Oh, the Hashem. Yeah. That's what makes him the Yeah. Why would I do that? There's different reasons. Um, one of the reasons is because there is a notion that when you move from level to level, if the two levels are not comparable with each other, you can't, you have to let go of what you had before you get the new thing. So to give you an example, one of the things you probably noticed in, in classes, like in my note, 
is that sometimes you come in with a certain preconceived notion about life or reality, and as long as you're like insistent that that is the foundation of the new thing you're learning, there's going to be a clash. Right? Sometimes, you know, a person, let's say, grows up in a secular society, and you encounter you know, a very traditional religious culture, right? There's going to be things that just don't make sense. And so there has to be a letting go of the old in order to appreciate the new, okay? Um, and, the, and so what happens if it's sad that he's going to move to a radically different level of awareness of Hashem? What has to happen first? He has to shed the old. He has to shed the old. And in that in-between space... He's vulnerable. Not a tzaddik. It's like a leap. It's like that part where he's yeah, leaping. right. What? Well, that's the, the main book of Tanya is about being a Bainani, which is not a tzaddik, how to serve Hashem without being a tzaddik. And so the Alter Rebbe in the introduction, second section of Tanya says, even a tzaddik has to know how to be a Bainani because from time to time, a tzaddik, Hashem will pull away that experience from them, not as a punishment. They're just going to a higher level of tzaddik. Yeah, there's a higher level of awareness of Hashem, but you can't have one without losing the other. And so in the middle... Isn't it such a small, like, because you're slowly shedding it. It's not like you're no, like, no, no, it can radically lose it. So then you're literally like, tzaddik, nothing, tzaddik. Right. That's really tough. It's extremely it's tough. It is. And so if a tzaddik doesn't know how to serve Hashem without being a tzaddik, then they could really fall. So it makes a tzaddik a tzaddik is not anything that he really does at the end of the day. It's about what no, it's a combination of the two things. Use the, right, but use so use the analogy of a good marriage. Is it correct to say that someone has a good marriage? It's none of their doing. It's all their spouse. No, but if they have a good marriage, can they say it's all my doing? No, it's a it's by definition a reality that arises in a cooperative way. But not necessarily if you do your part. Will that's right. Good that's right. And by the way, even if you have a good marriage, a good marriage goes through, through parts where the marriage doesn't seem so good. For instance, one spouse decides to open up more about the deeper parts of their life, and that sets the whole relationship in shambles for a time being, right? That can happen. So what happens if Hashem decides to reveal to a tzaddik a little bit more about it really means that there's only God? What does that really mean that God is true? Well, that tzaddik may not be able to, 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 to handle that. They have to like, work with that and process it. Yeah. Being a tzaddik is not a magical thing that all of a sudden now you have like an a effortless life. It's not true. That's so, but that's also emblematic of all of our lives. We're just not tzaddikim. Right, right. In other words, the, what the altar is describing in the tzaddik is the ideal version of life. And then what he's going to do is then test, take a step back from that when we get to start talking about the Bainani and saying, okay, what is the non-ideal life? But you, you have an, like an ideal life as a, as a point of reference. Exactly. Okay, I just want to finish the paragraph quickly so that such are the graduations, gradations of the numerous righteous men who are found in every generation, as mentioned in the Gemara. 18,000 righteous men stand before the Holy and Blessed Be He. Um, just to be fair, it doesn't actually, the Hebrew say men. Hebrew is, every word in Hebrew has a gender to it, right? And without going into the whole, you know, gender equality thing about this, when Hebrew uses the male, it could also just be the generic. So if you want to say, if you want to speak about tzaddikim without folk, people who are righteous without focusing on their gender, you would say tzaddikim, right? Okay, so, um, and then in English, you can't just say righteous. It sounds awkward. You have to say righteous something, righteous, and so they just translated. 
because that's what the translator did. I mean, you could, that's what I'm trying to tell you, is that it, there's nothing in the original text that says men. That, that's unique. There are sometimes that Tanya speaking of things that relate specifically to men. This is not one of them. So there are 18,000 tzaddikim before Hashem. And how many generations have there been, according to the Torah? Make a simple calculation. How many, how many years has the world been in existence, according to the Torah? Almost 6,000, 6, right? How many generations do you have in a century? If you're talking about like people tend to have children, say, after they're 20... I know, so let's, let's, but let's, let's make that assumption just to illustrate. So you'd say five a century, so 50 for every thousand years, right? So even if we say it's a full 6,000 years, 60 times five is? Two, two thousand What? So six times five is 300. So it's about 300 generations, right? How many tzaddikim are there? So how many in every generation? I believe the technical term is a lot. Right? If you only have 300 generations, right? Or something along that order of magnitude, and you have 18,000 tzaddikim, right? So that's how many in a generation? 600 in a generation. That's a lot of tzaddikim, right? Given what we just described that tzaddik is, that's a lot, right? And they're less generations. We're overestimating. So, so what he says, there are numerous in every generation. Like it, it may, 18,000 might not sound like a lot until you like put actually into in, the math. And like that's a lot. Of, imagine like at any point in time we're saying, right, that there are um, you know, there, there, there's, there's a few hundred people walking around the earth like this, right? Maybe more, maybe less, right? But that's a lot of, that's a lot of tzaddikim. Why not? Who says you know who they are, right? Maybe they hide their humility behind a veil of arrogant pride. How do you know? <laughs> right? How would you know who's a... Like, I'm asking you, like, like, unless you've seen them sin, how would you know that they're not a tzaddik? When the Altar wrote the Tanya, it's a longer story, but he wanted to get uh, approval from a certain tzaddik. This tzaddik, I believe, he lived in Vienna. He was, the, he was the guy who cleaned up in the, in the theater house. I think it was Vienna. So the Viennese theater house, you know, a very, very Hasidic place to be. And he was the guy who like cleaned up the theater after the plays every night. His name was Carl. And the Alterba sent one of his Hasidim to give a copy of the Tanya manuscript on condition that he not keep it. To have Carl overlook it and give his approval whether he thought it was a good idea or not to the Tanya. So I don't know who this Carl is, right? I'm sure everybody who met this Carl did not think, ooh, he's a tzaddik, but he goes, it's a tzaddik. Did he, did he give it a, is he yes, yes. Who, no, he didn't write anything, but yeah. he, gave, he, gave a verbal, he gave a verbal approbation, and uh, he wanted to keep it, if I remember correctly, and Alter was like, no, you can't keep it. Can't keep it. I don't know. I don't know. Tell me. It's a longer story of how the Chassid ended up meeting the Carl, this guy named Carl. We don't know anything about him. Yeah. But not a He didn't walk around as a little first off like you know if he, cover, if he covered his head and he wore a longer jacket which was the norm at the time right like how would you know if he was a religious Jew or not 
right? <laughs> I mean, nowadays we like, get, like, depending on what the non-Jewish culture is, if the non-Jewish culture dresses in a, in a relatively decent manner, you can halachically dress in a inconspicuous way and still be, you know. No, not at all. Not at all. There was a, the, the fourth Chabad Rebbe was named Shmuel. He was named after a water carrier from, I believe, the village of Plotsk. The water carrier died on the day of his bris. The, vil- the people in the village didn't bury him right away because one of the big rich people in the city died. And so they went, they buried him and did his funeral. And then at the end of the day, right before the sun went down, they remembered, oh, oh, oh the water carrier is also there. We got to bury him before the sun goes down. And so the, and, you know, 100 miles away in Lubavitch at Samach who was the Rebbe at the time, delayed the bris until like the last moment so that they could name the child after this water carrier. And his son says, his, 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 one of his sons asked the Samach is he named after the prophet Shmuel? He says, no, he's named after the water carrier in Plotsk. Mm. Who's the water carrier? Nobody knows the water carrier in Plotsk was. He was a tzaddik. Nobody knew he was a tzaddik. I don't know. Everything in Tanya in terms of the levels of relationship with Hashem are equivalent between men and women. So there could be For sure. Is there a I don't know how the division, the divisions work. There's no reason. <laughs> exactly. I mean, why wouldn't that be able to be the case? What? Like, why shouldn't a woman be able to be inside? Having a word of What? Having a word of Women can't have an awareness of Hashem. Yeah. What are the ages? <laughs> Age requirements. Very, very <laughs> thank you. Got it. All right. Okay, thank you. Lots of tzaddikim. Maybe, for all you know, the person who passed by on the street. Is that's happening. <laughs>